Amos chapter 2, verse number 9, and it reads as follows. Yet destroyed I the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars. And he was strong as the oaks, yet I destroyed his fruit from above, and his roots from beneath. Also I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and led you forty years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up your sons for prophecies, and your, <coughs> for prophets, excuse me, and your young men for Nazarites. Is it not even thus, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord? But ye gave the Nazarites wine to drink, and commanded the prophets, saying, Prophecy not. Behold, I am pressed under you, as a cart is pressed that is full of sheaves. Therefore the flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not strengthen for his force, neither shall the mighty deliver himself. Neither shall he stand that handleth the bow, and he that is swift of foot shall not deliver himself. Neither shall he that rideth the horse deliver himself. And he that is courageous among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, saith the Lord. Let's pray before we get into today's verses. Dear God, we thank you for the chance to study your word, the Bible. And your Bible is always here to teach us more, to help us learn more, to guide us in our lives. Be at this church now. As everyone here tries to learn your word, help me to speak your word so that your word can be more and more part of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we continue today with our study of the book of Amos, right? And we've been talking about the one major continuing recurring theme throughout this book, and that is the theme of judgment. Judgment, right? If you learn nothing else from all these Sunday school about Amos, you will know that Amos is about judgment. We looked in chapter 1. That whole chapter was about judgment on Gentile nations, right? Repeating over and over again the things that they did wrong and the judgment that was coming to them. The start of chapter 2 was the same stuff, right? And then it switched, starting with verse number 4 of chapter 2, into talking about Judah and Israel and their problems, right? Because judgment wasn't just reserved for Israel's enemies. No, they had plenty of problems of their own. And so God calls out Judah and Israel and all the things that he said in their opinion, in his opinion, was not going right, that was deserving of judgment. If you remember, we looked at Judah, right? It said in verse number four and five, right? Judah did not keep the commandments, right? They walked in error, it said, right? Like they should have known better than to do all these sin, basically, right? So they, they didn't follow God's word. They had God's word. They knew what God expected of, of them, did not follow. So they were worthy of judgment. Most recently, we've been studying in verse number six onward all the terrible things that Israel was doing, right? The first thing we read in verse number six, right? About selling the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. That they had no compassion. That even people who were in debt for them for small amounts, they'd be willing to sell into slavery just to satisfy those debts, right? And, you know, they they make it... God makes it clear in these verses that these are the righteous, right? That these are not the people that are just like crooks that stole money to buy shoes and then, uh, and then they didn't pay you back. These are people that had a righteous reason not for that. Nonetheless, Israel had no compassion toward them. They cared only about themselves and their own comfort and their own happiness and their own whatever. 
And how much more so was that illustrated in verse number 7, right? Verse number 7, how they step on the heads of the poor, it says, right? Turn away the meek. And even at the end of verse 7, we studied last time how a man and his father would drink wine of the condemned in the house of their God, uh, uh, would, uh, would go into the same maid, profane my holy name, and then in verse 8, drink wine in the condemned house of their God. And we talked last time about this, what it probably is referring to. It's probably referring to a practice, ancient practice of other pagan gods back in you know, the day of Amos, where part of their worship of these idols was that they had sex with prostitutes. And that was a considered a holy experience for them. And that's why a man and his father would go down, lie with the same maid, right? Because it would be the person in the temple, right? It says that these are the people in the house of their God, not God's house, right? Their God, right? And while they're doing that, they're doing what? They're drinking wine. They're living it up, aren't they, right? Because again, this goes back to that same thing we talked about in the previous verse, that Israel had become this kind of self-centered, right? Self-pleasuring type of country, right? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what God says. This is my thing now. I feel happy doing this. I want to go do this or whatever. It makes me feel good. And that was the exact wrong path. Right? They should have known. God doesn't condone that. Certainly doesn't condone idolatry. Certainly doesn't condone adultery. Doesn't condone any of that. Right? But that's what they did. And so it makes sense as we read on, as we finish up verse, chapter number 2 today, that certainly there's going to be judgment for Israel. Right? But even more than that, even more than that, what else did they do? What else did they do? So that's what we look at today a little bit. Verse number 9. Verse number nine, God gives a reminder. He says this, Yet I destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the cedar, right? And then to verse 10, I brought you up from the land of Egypt, led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites, right? What else did he do? Verse 11, I raised you up sons of prophets and your young men of Nazarites, right? God starts off reminding them, these are all the things I did for you, right? You guys were slaves in Egypt. I helped you get out of that, right? You guys were lost in the wilderness. I guided you through. You guys came to this land that was dominated by giants, huge countries, enemy nations like the Amorites. I brought them to their knees so that you guys could have this land. That's all that God did. What's the response? What's the response of Israel? Read in verse number uh, 12. You gave the Nazarites wine to drink. If you remember the Nazarites, right? These are people that wanted to separate themselves apart from the regular folk to be extra holy, right? That they, that they committed themselves to not drink wine and not, not and to grow out their hair long and to, uh, to uh, not eat meat, things like that. Well, for that vow, that sacred holy vow, their response is that, ah, just go drink some wine, right? To tell them that that vow was not important right? That you can go ahead and drink this wine. You gave it to them, right? You didn't support their quest to be holier. 
What about what else? You commanded the prophets, right? God gave them prophets to speak the literal words of God. People like Amos and Hosea and Joel and all these people have been studying. People that speak the literal words of God. What do they tell them? Prophesy not. Meaning basically, shut up. I don't want to hear it. You keep talking about this God stuff all day long. I do not want to hear it. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what a great and wonderful gift that is? To have someone to communicate with God, to share his words. How much more so would we love something like that today? People talk about all the time. Like, why doesn't God speak directly to us? Why can't we hear his voice? Those people in Israel had that. They had someone telling them exactly, this is what God is saying. Here's God's message to you. And to that, they said, shut up. We don't want to hear it. Prophesy not. Right? How does God describe what the totality of all this stuff Israel is doing to him? In verse number 13, he says this, Behold, I am pressed under you as a cart that is pressed full of sheaves. So, you can imagine a cart. You know, we can imagine any kind of cart. We have carts today, right? Or in the old days, a wooden cart that an animal might pull. If you load more and more sheaves onto it, what happens? You load more and more and more. Eventually, what happens is your cart will break, right? Be too heavy on the top. This is not to say that God is burdened by anything that we can do, but he gives us an illustration of the weight of all the sin of Israel, right? We've had sin of less lack of compassion, right? The sin of all this adultery, of all this uh, idolatry, of all this self-centeredness. Now all this ungratefulness, all this is weighing on the cart. And eventually what's going to happen? It's going to break. Just like any other cart. If you load it up too much, it's going to break. And we've been studying that phrase that he uses over and over again, right? In the book of Amos, when he talks about for three transgressions and for four, right? I can't explain that to you guys. That meant like, that's kind of like, the last straw. It doesn't mean exactly three sins and here's the fourth one and you're in trouble. It means you've done one too many, right? And here we have another image that kind of represents the same thing, right? You've done all the sin and now there's going to be one too many. It's going to break the cart, right? It's going to break the cart. You've gone over your limit, right? How much bad can you do, Israel? You're pressing down on me like you're pressing down on the cart, loading up the cart too much. Guess what? It's going to break. What happens when it breaks? Now we get to, once again, what is the same, our theme? Judgment. Verse 14, 15, and 16. Judgment, right? So when this card is pressed too much, when God is pressed too much, when you guys have just thrown too much at God, you've broke the last straw. Verse 14. The flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not strengthen his force. The mighty shall not deliver himself. Right? God had blessed Israel so much over the years, right? And bless them with so many things, different talents and strengths and all these things. All that's going to be taken away, right? It says those people that are fast, they can run fast. Not anymore. The flight's going to take, be taken away from them, right? The strong, right? You think Israel's strong. You can fight all these wars and win all these battles and stuff like that. Strong will not be strengthened anymore, right? The mighty that were delivering Israel all this time, God says they're not going to deliver them anymore, Right? No one is going to be delivered. Not the ones that ride the horse, right? Not the courageous. All these people, their strength is going to be sapped. And that is the judgment of God. The judgment of God for all these sins that we've just listed off throughout the whole chapter 2. So it makes sense, right? But I want to focus on one thing today. If you look back at uh, 
at the beginning of this section that we've read here, verse numbers 9 to 11, one of the things that we point out here, the next thing that they did wrong, was that how ungrateful, how ungrateful Israel was, right? And how God really calls it out here, right? Because he does, right? He reminds them of all the wonderful things that he did, all the deliverances that he provided over such a long time. It's not just a short time, but over like many, many, many years, whether it be in Egypt, in the wilderness, in the promised land. God had done so much for these people. Yet there was no thanks, no appreciation, no gratefulness. Instead, only spite, only spite. Now we all know this, we all know this from our regular lives, that, that being thankful and being grateful is always appreciated, motivates us to, uh, to, to do well and to uh, push us forward in life. You know, at work, you know, I used to work at this place and uh, you know, me and this other guy, we worked really hard for this one, uh, one partner, this one boss, and he would push us really hard, right? Like that's the way he operated, right? He wants everyone to work hard and if we have to get stuff done, we have to work nights, work weekends, whatever, doesn't care, right? Work's gotta get done, right? And we would you know, work really hard and get it done. And one of the things that my, my buddy in one of the other office, you know, my buddy that worked with me complained about was that, look, like, you know, we work so hard, right? We kill ourselves. We're working like nights and weekends and we get all this stuff done and we're doing the best we can. And like that boss, he never says anything about it, right? Never says anything. There's no like appreciation, no thank you, no nothing. It's just as if like, okay, good. Now here's more work for you, right? Keep working more. And so he was very frustrated by that, right? And you can imagine how frustrating that would feel when you feel like unappreciated, un, uh, you know, unthanked for all the hard work that you did, right? All the things that you're doing. Now, of course, that's just a job, right? You know, your job, you're unhappy. You can always go out and uh, find another job, right? And maybe you find a person that's more appreciative of you and then that'll make things better. But it's much harder when you're in a situation like God where you're stuck with these people. Now, I analogize this more to like being like a parent, a parent of ungrateful kids, right? Now, you guys, many of you guys are parents, and maybe you guys can relate to this. I certainly can relate to this because a lot of the stuff we do as parents does go unnoticed, right? The kids don't know or care about many of the things you guys do, especially early on in life, right? Like the first like year or two, they don't know anything, right? They can't even talk. So how are they ever going to say thank you for all the diapers you changed, right? All the times you fed them, all the times you took care of them when they were sick, all the kind of stuff. There's no thankfulness or gratefulness for that, right? And you kind of live with it. You kind of accept that, right? Because he's like, oh, you know, I'm the parent. You know, these are my kids. I got to do it. It's my obligation. I got to care for them. You hope one day they'll be thankful and appreciative and obedient and all that kind of thing, right? You know, that's the way parents are. That's the way families are. But here's the thing that really gets you frustrated as a parent. And those guys who are not parents, I'll explain to you what gets me frustrated as a parent. Because what happens is they do grow up eventually, and they do know things, and they talk, and, and they're willing to understand. And sometimes you, you hope that they'd be willing to appreciate all the things and hard work you do for you, right? But what is the most frustrating thing of all? The most frustrating thing of all is when not only are your kids not appreciative and thankful for stuff you do, it's when they're also rebellious. 
and angry toward you, right? For example, you know, like uh, my boy, Andrew, you know, sometimes, and, th- and you know, this happens enough that I can't even remember the exact details, because it might have happened uh, incorrectly. Maybe Elaine will correct the story one day, but this happened maybe more than one time, right? Where it'd be something really simple. I'm trying to take care of him, trying to tell him to do something that's good for him, like, you know, like wash your hands or brush your teeth, something really obvious, right? Like, I think it's non-controversial, right? Like, it's time to brush your teeth. You're going to sleep now. Brush your teeth or something like that, right? And then he starts throwing a temper tantrum. He goes like, no, I'm not brushing my teeth or whatever, right? And starts getting very angry for whatever reason. And it's not just angry. He starts saying all this stuff. He's at the age where he can say all this stuff, right? And he says all this stuff. He says stuff like, oh, you're the worst daddy ever, right? Worst daddy ever. I said, I'm starting to brush your teeth, right? You're the worst daddy ever. And then the most extreme thing I've ever heard him say to me is like, Daddy, die. Wish you die. I'm like, what? So what is my reaction when you say like this? It's like, hey. You know, I, so Elaine can tell you how angry I got when he, got, when he said so this. So I, I blew up that poor guy because I said, look, you know, you want me to die? Fine. But look, who took care of you your whole life, right? You want another daddy? Go find yourself another family, right? You can go walk out that door right now. I opened the door for him, right? I opened the door. I said, here, go outside. You find another daddy. And that's it, okay? If, you want, if I'm so bad and I deserve to die, get out, right? That's literally what I told him because... I'm like, okay, you know, I, I'm just telling you to brush your teeth, and you made it like this, okay? I, I don't know. That's how I felt as a father, right? As a father, A, I do all this stuff for you, and your reaction is, Daddy, die, right? That's how God felt, isn't it? I did all this stuff for you. I got you out of Egypt, out of slavery. I helped you through the wilderness. I helped you get, conquer all these lands. And you say what? Prophets, stop giving me prophecy. I don't want to hear God's word anymore. Shut up, prophets, right? Nazarites, stop acting all holy. I want to give you all this wine and stuff. Start being more like normal sinners, right? I'm sick of seeing you guys be holy. They were just like that. How ungrateful these people were. This is the problem. The problem of Israel, the problem of their ungratefulness, right? Not just ungratefulness, ungratefulness coupled with rebelliousness. The double bad thing, right? That will make God so upset, right? We would react the same way. I wanted to cast judgment on Andrew, right? Get out of the house, right? You're so terrible to say something like that, right? To act like that. And sure enough, we read in this chapter as we finish up, there's judgment for Israel, for all these things, including their ungratefulness, right? The judgment of, hey, your fast people aren't going to be fast anymore. Your strong people aren't going to be strong anymore. Your mighty people aren't going to be mighty anymore, right? Your country is going to be weakened, basically, right? That was a judgment, in part because of their lack of gratefulness, which is why Thanksgiving is so important, right? And we're not talking about just the holiday of Thanksgiving come November, right? not a once a year thing, right? We know, we know that Thanksgiving is always important year round. Why? Because it prevents ourselves, prevents ourselves from falling down this trap of being the ungrateful Christian, the rebellious Christian, the uh, Christian 
that looks at God and says, what have you done for me lately? I don't care about you and, and anything like that. When we dwell on Thanksgiving, when we dwell on remembrance of all of God's blessings, our mind, our body, our soul comes closer to God. There's a reason why, you know, Nathan, when he talks about prayer and stuff, says that, oh, you need to pray for Thanksgiving at least once a week, right? And it's better, and you know, honestly, yeah, it could be better if you did even more, right? All the time, right? Give thanks to God always, right? But at the very minimum, once a week, to take some time out to reflect on all the things that God has done for you. Because when you do that, you realize, hey, you're, all the blessing that God has in your life, that draws you closer to him. Does it not? Right? When you think about, oh, God did this for me. God did that for me. I am so blessed. Your reaction after that isn't to go and then do, okay, now it's time for me to go sin. That's not the way people think, right? When you remember all that, that encourages not to sin, right? You say, wow, God, you did all this stuff for me. Well, I better do my best to do my best for you, right? That's the way it ought to be, right? That's the way our minds operate, right? Because when you're thinking about it, surrounded by it all the time, giving praise to God, praising God all the time, remembering God for all the things that he's did for you on a day-to-day basis, a week-to-week basis, whatever it is, that our mind has that focus. And when we have that focus on God, it'll prevent us from falling down the same trap that Israel did, right? How can we be so self-centered on ourselves to go out and sin when our mind is focused not on ourselves but on God and all the great things that he did? How can we go out there and go and like uh, worship idols and worship some other God when we just gave thanks to our God? How can we go out there and do something like adultery, right? When we've been praising God, our God that we know speaks against adultery. How can we be so ungrateful and so self-centered and selfish when we know that our God that we just thanked and praised is a God of compassion, a God of love. We know that. That's why Thanksgiving is so important. But so many times people get lost in the forest thinking about that sometimes, right? The whole like, idea of recency bias. And say like, oh, maybe God hasn't done anything to me in the last five minutes or in the last day. I don't feel like God did anything for me today. Therefore, I will not pray for Thanksgiving. Or I haven't had any miracle happen to me. That's why I don't pray, because I only pray thanks when I have a miracle. Folks, if you take that attitude, you've missed the boat already, right? You don't understand what it means to be Christian. A Christian should always have something to be thankful for, because at the very minimum, at the very basic, at the very start, we should always be able to give thanks to God for Jesus Christ. Should we not? Isn't that the greatest miracle of all? That Jesus Christ died on the cross to take away our sins, and through that, all of us have everlasting life in heaven by simply believing on him. Is that something that you are thankful for? I thank God for that all the time. If I have nothing else to be thankful for, my life's going crappy, I'm sick, I'm you know, not feeling well, right? My kids are acting terrible or whatever, I can still thank God for Jesus. There is no reason any of us here have to say that I have nothing to give thanks for, right? 
We always have something to give thanks for. There's always a reason for us to give glory to God. At the minimum, at the minimum, to say, wow, you know, you gave us Jesus Christ, your own son, to die on the cross for all of our sins. And there's so many more things like that, the things that we forget about. And sometimes we go hear the Thanksgiving testimony every year, and you hear these wild and amazing stories about how God did all these uh, ridiculous things, all these people delivered them from dangerous situations, and so on and so forth, and we think, wow, that's great. But there's also people that go up on the Thanksgiving testimony, and I think their testimony is just as great to say that, guess what? This year, nothing bad happened to me. In fact, only good stuff happened to me, right? Like, we had a baby, and our family was healthy, and they got promotions at their work, or this and that, or whatever. all this good stuff, just normal stuff, not a crazy story or whatever. That's also so huge, so deserving of thanks. We forget it all the time, right? We take it for granted that there's a roof over our head and, uh, you know, a warm, warm place to sleep and, you know, food to eat and all these other things that so many people in the world literally today don't have, right? We know that living in the United States, we have so many blessings just by living here instead of some poor country, third world country, backwards country, oppressive country, all those things that we have so much to be thankful for just because of that. With all these things, how many people, how many even Christians are still ungrateful, that still act like, I've got nothing to say thank you for, that I don't pray to you, God. I don't take this time out to pray to you. No, no, no. I think the message here is that we ought to, we ought to always remember to give glory to God, to praise God, and that'll keep us on the right path. Yes, even stuff that happened before, even stuff, whatever, right? Look at this. When we're talking about leaving Egypt, defeating the Amorites, I'm sure the people in Amos' day would say, like, that was hundreds of years ago. Like, who cares? That was so long ago, right? But no, you give glory to God for all the things he's done, all the blessings he's given us. Otherwise, what's the result? It leads us on the wrong path. And we lead down the wrong path, the path of sin, Leads to what? The same thing we've talking about this whole book so far. Leads to judgment. So that's what we have here for chapter number two. Next time, we're going to go on to chapter number three, which is more stuff about Israel and so on. And we'll hear more about it. But right now, we'll finish up a little bit early, but, you know, don't want to start chapter three right now. So let's end off with a word of prayer. Dear God, thank you for Amos chapter two. We can finish up studying about the sins of Judah and Israel and, you know, all the stuff that they've done wrong to give us a guide for our own lives that hopefully we don't fall under the same trap, we don't fall into the same things that they did wrong and keep us away from sin and all that kind of stuff. Lord, we ask that you certainly help us with that. God, we ask that you bless also the rest of the Sunday morning that as we gather here to worship you and praise you and honor you, that we be filled with your spirit so that we are filled with that heart of love and thanksgiving and joy and all those kind of things, Lord. Uh, thank you for this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.